Hi, my name is Jacob Benton, and I'm the worship leader at King's Cross Church. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross in Charleston, South Carolina. We're working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to The Story, visit kingscross.org. Thanks for listening. Chip, I'm also one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're with us uh, this morning. Like a lot of you, I'm not a native of Charleston. Uh, I moved here in 1997 from uh, Kentucky. If you've ever uh, moved uh, from one part of the country to the other, then you know that it can take some time to adjust. So you have to figure things out like which grocery store do I like and where are the really good takeout places? You know, can I find a good church home and where is that going to be? Who am I going to hang out with and how am I going to establish new relationships? You kind of have to figure out how to be you in a different place. Like, like how do I be me here? Right? And I know that uh, there are a handful of folks at King's Cross who have made the move not from another part of our country, but from another country altogether. And that's a completely exponential jump to that. Even if you've never moved, and maybe like my wife, Charleston is your home and you're born and raised, but maybe you've traveled internationally and you know that when you go to another place, there are adjustments to be made. It can be hard. There's language barriers. You have these cultural gaps in of kind of normative expectations of, of behavior and how families work and work styles, if you've ever had to work overseas. There, you know, the, the idioms people use are different. Humor is different. Humor is one of the hardest things to convey across cultures. Everything can seem to be different there than it was here, right? Or, or once you get there, everything seems to be different here than it was back home. If you've ever felt that way, that's exactly where a young man named Daniel found himself in 605 B.C., We're going to read from the book that has his name on it. We're going to start with Daniel 1, 1 to 4, and get some background on kind of where we are in the events of his life. Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. The best of the best, right? Go find me the most beautiful, handsome, smartest kids and and bring them to my court and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. 
Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. These four young men, and they are likely in their early teens when Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem and exiles them back to serve in his court. They are the primary figures of the historical narrative that drives Daniel chapters 1 through 6. But it's the context here of these opening verses that helps us understand the rest of the book. Because Daniel is in Babylon. In verse 2, he calls it the land of Shinar. In verse 4, he refers to its people as the Chaldeans. Now that matters. If you skip over that, then what you wind up is you'll turn very often Daniel 1 to 6 into a series of moral examples. Be brave like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when you're in the fiery furnace of your temptation. Right? Be be at peace like David when, when you're surrounded by the lion's den of liberalism, you know, or whatever. Like, we, we turn these into moral stories. That's not the point of Daniel. It's not the point of the book. Because if you roll all the way back to the beginning of the story, as we've been um, reading and, and, and preaching and studying our way through the story of the Bible all year long together, if you go all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, what you find is God calling a man named Abram to leave his homeland and go to a land that God would show him. And God promises that through Abram, who he renames Abraham, he will establish a great people. And that great people will be both blessed by God and be the people through whom God blesses the rest of the world. As we've seen, Abraham's family tribe grows exponentially while enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. But God frees them through the work of a man named Moses. He makes a covenant with them, establishes them in the land of Canaan, and his presence dwells with them. But as we've been studying over the last several weeks, the kingdom of Israel, as they had become called, crumbles. It gets divided into two separate kingdoms. The northern is conquered by Assyria. The southern is conquered by Babylon. And Daniel and his friends are captured and exiled in that southern kingdom's being conquered part of the story. So as they are there, if you were to look back into Jerusalem, there is no longer a descendant of David on the throne of the kingdom of Judah. In fact, there's no longer a kingdom at all because it's been conquered. There's no longer a functioning temple or priesthood, no longer any security in the city of Jerusalem because its walls have been torn down. And most tragically, as we saw last week in our study of the book of Ezekiel, no longer does the glory of God dwell there. To all outward appearances, this is the end of Israel, both literally and symbolically. Because if you went all the way back to Genesis 11, what you may remember there is that God scattered mankind across the face of the earth because they had rejected his mandate to multiply and to fill the earth. Instead, 
They had set their hearts towards establishing a name for themselves, towards building a city for themselves, to building a tower that would reach all the way into the heavens themselves. And so God had confused their languages and scattered them from that place. And then he renamed that city Babel, which meant in the Hebrew, like a word we might use like Babel. It is confusing of the languages. Do you know what the original name of that land that God renamed Babel was in Genesis 11 2? It's the land of Shinar. Many of us may recall God's famous call of Abraham in Genesis 12 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, God told him. You know what country that was? What country it was that Abraham was called out of? Genesis eleven thirty one says he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Well, after some time, what happened was the Chaldeans became uh, known that they started to be called after the new name of their capital city, Babylonians. They're Babylonians. So what's outlined in Daniel 1? is nothing less than the reversal of the establishment of God's people. They are going back to the land from which God had called their father Abraham. They are going back to live in the place of rebellion, among the people of rebellion. They are going back to the land of confusion. If you're already a Christian... This is why Daniel is so important to you. Or if you're not a Christian yet, but you are investigating the claims of the Bible and you are considering repenting and turning to God in faith, this is why Daniel is going to be so important to you because you are going to be tempted to go back. To go back to your old life. To go back to your destructive patterns of sin, to go back to being apathetic about faith or casual about church or unconcerned about people who are close to you but far from God. All Satan wants to do is simply reverse the work that God has been doing or is doing in your life. That's all he needs to do. He just gets you to go back to the place where you were before spiritually to get you to go back spiritually to the place of rebellion and he doesn't have to get you to go back physically the way he did daniel and his friends because physically we're already there the apostle peter writing to the christians in first peter 2 11 refers to us as sojourners and exiles The writer of Hebrews says that Christians, just like the exiles in Babylon, have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We already live in Babylon, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with what political party is in charge at the moment or what country we happen to reside in, or what language we speak, or what culture we participate in, because since 605 B.C., all of God's people have been exiles. All of God's people have been living in 
symbolically, metaphorically, Babylon. So the question that you and I have is not, am I living in exile? Am I in Babylon? The question to that, or the answer to that is yes, you are. The question for us is, how do we do that? How do we live as exiles? How do we live in Babylon? And the book of Daniel gives us two encouragements to God's people or as God's people in exile. The first is this. You can be faithful in a world that's not. You can be faithful in a world that's not. In chapters 1 through 6, we see this truth played out in three distinct ways. If you remember in the intro, it said that Daniel and his three friends were given the very best the king's court had to offer. The best education, they get the best jobs, the best food, the best wine from the king's own personal stores. But in Daniel 1.8, we read this. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the king's wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, we don't know exactly why Daniel and his guys decided that this, that the food and the wine, etc., from the king's table were going to defile them. They don't really tell us that. What we do know is that their upbringing back in Jerusalem meant they would have known the difference between what God allowed and what he didn't. So whatever judgment they're making is part of their upbringing, and, and they know. Now, the chief of the eunuchs is worried that if he stops letting them partake of the best food, they're going to get kind of sickly. And remember, they were specifically, you know, physical beauty was part of the reason that they were gathered to the king's court anyway. And so he says, I don't think I can really let you do this. And Daniel challenges him. He says, I tell you what, why don't you let us eat the way we want to eat for 10 days, and we'll see how things go. Verse 15 says, at the end of the 10 days, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Verse 17 says, God was with them. He gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. So that by the end of their training, in verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Here's the point. You don't have to eat the proverbial king's meat. You don't have to partake from the proverbial king's table. You can say no. You can be faithful in a world that's not. You don't have to do what everybody else in your office or your classroom does. You don't have to do what everybody else, you know, in, in your industry or on your team does. You don't have to do what all the boys do when you're out together or what everybody else does on a girls' weekend. You can be faithful in a world that's not. See, yeah, but I'll miss out. I'll fall behind. You don't really understand my industry. You, 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 don't understand, you don't get it. Well, neither did the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel and his friends declined, and he's like, why in the world would you 
do that. That doesn't make any sense. But God was with them. Your future, your health, your influence, your legacy, your enjoyment of this life is not bound up in, it's not found in the hands of the world or your boss or your Instagram followers. Your life is in the hands of the one who created you, who breathed life into you, who called you to himself and who promised to never leave you or forsake you. Because of that, you can be faithful in a world that's not. And this theme continues in chapters two through five. They're they kind of work as a unit. They're connected, so we can't plumb the depths of all of them. Um, I'll just summarize it for you. In Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this troubling dream, and no one in all of Babylon can interpret it except, as it turns out, Daniel. God gives him insight and wisdom, and he helps him to explain. And Daniel goes to the king, and he says, well, let me explain your dream to you. There's this statue in the king's dream. It has a gold head, and it kind of works its way down through lesser valuable metals all the way till it gets to clay feet. And Daniel says that represents the kingdoms of the world, starting with yours, the gold head, and working its way down. And in your dream, there's this stone that comes, and it shatters the statue, and the stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And that, Daniel says, is the kingdom of God. When Daniel's done, the king falls on his face, he gives Daniel honor, and he praises Daniel's God. But immediately after that, in Daniel 3.1, we read this. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold image whose height was 60 cubits, that's about 90 feet, and whose breadth 6 cubits, that's about 9 feet, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He made a statue. Only his is all gold. His entire statue is only representative of the kingdom of Babylon. And he commands everyone everywhere to worship it when they hear this certain music played. Well, by verse 12, word has gotten back to the king that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship the statue. They're not bowing down to the kingdom of Babylon. What follows is the famous story of the fiery furnace. King has this huge furnace he has it heated to seven times its normal heat he says to the boys you're either going to bow down and worship this statue i'm gonna burn you alive they say we're not doing it so he has them thrown into the furnace the furnace is so hot that the babylonian guards who threw the guys into it died from heat exposure yet the king looks into the furnace and he sees not three but four men walking around inside of it. Daniel 3.25. I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So the king orders them to come out, and once again he praises the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Chapter 4, he has another dream, the king does. This time it's about this huge fruit-filled, beautiful tree. It gets cut down, and the remnant of the tree becomes a beast of the field for seven periods of time. Once again, it's up to Daniel to explain. And once again, he tells the king, this dream is about the kingdom of Babylon. It's going to be cut down. And you, king, you yourself are going to become the one who is like a beast of the field, which is exactly what happens. Daniel 4, 33. 
the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. If you keep reading, what happens is yet again in verses 34 to 37, the king humbles himself before Daniel's God. It appears to me that this time it's genuine and sincere. But he humbles himself before Daniel's God. He is restored and renewed back into his position of power. Chapter 5 opens. Nebuchadnezzar has passed from the scene. Now there's a new king on the throne named Belshazzar. And this king too needs Daniel's help, though not for a dream. Belshazzar has decided to throw this huge party. He's got all this lavish food, copious amounts of drink, concubines, abound in the party and what they are using in the celebration are the vessels that they had brought from the temple until in daniel chapter 5 verse 5 it says the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand and the king saw the hand as it wrote by the way every time you say the writings on the wall this is where it comes from. That's one of the idioms we picked up from the Bible. Daniel is, once again, the only one who's able to interpret what's happened. And so he gets called in, and he tells the king in verses 25 to 28, this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar dies that night. Darius the Mede is made king over the kingdom. Three kings, three events, one message. Your kingdom is is not greater than God's kingdom. God's kingdom rules over all these kingdoms. For the people of God, our encouragement to faithfulness now has extended outward from the king's stuff to the kingdom itself. You can be faithful in a world that's not. You don't have to bow down to the kingdoms of this world. You can live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not talking about like sovereign citizen doomsday prepper internet conspiracy stuff. Okay, I just mean the biblical view of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You can live in this world and not be of it. You can live as salt and light in the everyday places that you live, learn, work, and play. You can live in a countercultural way where God and his kingdom are foremost in your mind. You can, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all those other things will be added to you. That is possible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, watch this now, they didn't even work to undermine the king. They didn't withdraw from Babylon into some holy huddle out in the desert to start some new community. 
They didn't get on the dark web and organize protests and boycotts to make their point. In fact, verse 30 says, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar promotes them. Their position in the kingdom of Babylon rises even higher than it was before. So look, they are using their God-given skills and position and influence to work for the good of the kingdom in which they live, which is exactly what the prophet Jeremiah had told the people to do, pray for and work for the good of the city to which I'm going to send you. They are doing that. They, they are working for the good of the kingdom in which they live. They just don't worship it. They just don't worship it. It is not the first priority in their life. You can be faithful in a world that's not. By the time you reach Daniel 6, there's something of a crescendo of part one of the book. Darius the Mede is now on the throne, and he makes a new law. And what he says is, for 30 days, nobody in the entire kingdom can ask anyone or any god for anything except me. He makes himself, literally, the source of everything that everybody needs. He, he says, for the next 30 days, I'm your God. Well, Daniel's going to keep praying to Yahweh. Thank you very much. And that's a big deal. Because Daniel's not just some dude. Daniel had risen to be number three in power in the kingdom. So when Daniel is praying to Yahweh, that's a problem. And so he had had this decree, did Darius, and he has to follow through on it. There's nothing he can do about that. No one's above the law. And so he has Daniel thrown into the lion's den to be eaten alive. He doesn't particularly enjoy that because he likes Daniel. He's up all night. He doesn't sleep. He's worried because Daniel's a useful guy. He rushes down there the next morning, and Daniel's just sitting there kind of petting the lions like, what's the problem, you know? Daniel explains to the king that his God protected him. And so Darius turns on Daniel's accusers and their families. He takes Daniel out of the lion's den and throws all those people in where they are immediately consumed by the starving, ravenous lions. And then the king issues a new decree in Daniel 6, 25 to 28. King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. That language sounds familiar, doesn't it? Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You can be faithful in a world that's not. You do not have to compromise to get ahead. You do not have to go along to get along. Your hope for a safe, secure, happy future for you and your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your loved ones, it is not 
bound up ultimately with your job or the government or international treaties or whatever else makes you feel like the future is going to be safe. You do not have to fear those who have power or authority over you. You don't have to withdraw from the world to be faithful in it. You can be faithful in a world that's not. Because, and this is the key, second thing in your notes, God will be faithful to establish his kingdom. You can be faithful in a world that's not because God will be faithful to establish his kingdom. The hero of the book of Daniel is not Daniel. It's God. It's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's God. The one who is overcoming the kingdoms of the world in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is not Daniel. It's Yahweh. The one who has the power to raise up, to humble, to restore, or to tear down kings isn't Daniel. It's Yahweh. The one who is able to save his people from fiery furnaces or hungry lions or arrogant kings or even from exile where they have lost everything that they've ever known is God who is faithful to establish his kingdom. But what does that look like? Because let's be honest, if you know something of history, Plenty of Christians have been burned at the stake, used as candles by Nero. Plenty of Christians have been torn to pieces in the Roman Colosseum by lions. Was God not faithful then? The book of Daniel describes nine days in the life of Daniel. But the exile lasted 70 years. Was God faithful the other 69 years, 11 months, and 21 days? Or just on these nine? Daniel and his friends served the chief of the eunuchs, which means they were eunuchs, right? You were thinking that, you just weren't, you weren't confident, right? Was God faithful when they were being castrated? Like, it's important to remember as you're reading the Bible that the events that are recorded in it are the moments of divine exception, not the everyday experience of everybody everywhere. So what about all the other days? What about all the other fiery trials? Is God faithful in them? And that is what Daniel 7 through 12 answered. In in the second half of the book, the lens is pulled way, way back. And God is going to show Daniel this panoramic, cosmic view of his sovereignty and his faithful plan to establish his kingdom. In the first six chapters, it says, look, I'll be faithful on these certain days. In chapter 7 through 12, he comes all the way back. He says, and I am faithful on every day. And I'll show you what that looks like, Daniel. And the literary genre switches from historical narrative to apocalyptic. And so it becomes in chapters 7 through 12, as some of you read this week, if you're following along in our devotional plan, it becomes 
symbolic. And so I can't unpack everything that's in there. That There's just too much of it. And if you've been a little frustrated over the last few weeks as our series moves very quickly through these books, remember that like in the spring we had an 11-week equip class on the book of Daniel. So keep an eye out for some of these deeper studies that we offer and check those out if you have time to do so. But for now, we have to stay focused on the big picture. In chapters 7 to 8, Daniel has these two dreams, two visions, and they're related to the king's dream back in chapter 2. They're all about the kingdom of God overcoming the evil kingdoms of the world. In chapter 9, Daniel pleads with God to shorten the exile, and he says, actually, my people are still being unfaithful. What I'm going to do is I'm going to multiply it seven times over. Chapters 10 to 12, Daniel has one last vision. And this time, when the kingdoms of the world are overcome by God, the dead are resurrected in chapter 12. And Daniel is told that when all these things come to pass, it will be finished. In other words, this is a vision, Daniel, of the end times. And very often, when people read through Daniel, they focus on exactly what Daniel focused on which was when are these things going to happen? And Daniel's asking God to tell him, when are you going to end the suffering of your people and restore them? When are you going to destroy the evil empires of the world that cause all this desolation? When are you going to finally and fully fulfill your promises? It's just not the focus of the visions. The focus of the visions is how. How. Will the people of God be restored? How will God overcome evil? How will God finally and fully fulfill his promises? And the answer comes in Daniel 7. Verses 1 to 8, Daniel sees this series of four kings ruling four kingdoms. In verses 9 to 11, he sees God the Father on his throne, pictured as a great judge, opening the books of judgment as he sits in a courtroom. In verses 11 and 12, the enemies of God, the kings of this world, are pictured as great beasts who are destroyed. And then in verses 13 and 14, we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages would serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed i saw one like a son of man did you know that was jesus favorite way to refer to himself in the new testament son of man during his trial before the high priest what ultimately gets jesus crucified is his claim that he is this one about whom Daniel spoke, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the forever king on a forever throne who rules at God's right hand over all the kingdoms of the world. He says this in the middle of his trial, Matthew 26, 63 and 64. Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Daniel sees 
what he's shown in chapter 7 is nothing less than Jesus receiving from his Father everlasting dominion, all glory, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Well, when is that going to happen? Well, according to Daniel, in Daniel 7, and according to Jesus in Matthew 26, it happens when Jesus comes to the Father. When he comes on the clouds to the Father, it's a picture of the ascension of Jesus. After his death and resurrection, he ascends back to his Father. So according to Daniel and Jesus, the answer to the question, how are these things going to come about? How is the kingdom of God going to conquer the kingdoms of the world? It's going to happen through the death, resurrection, ascension, rule, reign, and return of Christ. This is the mechanism by which God will overcome the world. You want to see the faithfulness of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, then you can look to the fiery furnace. You can look at the food left on the king's table. You can look to the calm of the lion's den. But if you want to see the faithfulness of God, you look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And yes... I do believe that the fourth person walking around in the fire, and I do think that the angel of God who came and shut the lion's mouth was a pre-incarnate Jesus. But the faithfulness of God is not ultimately displayed by whether or not he saves you from the fiery trial you're walking through. The faithfulness of God is not ultimately displayed if he keeps you from harm. It's on display in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if Jesus' story ended there with his death, he would be just another Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, an expiring, inspiring example of love and selflessness. But it doesn't end there. On the third day he rose, and on the 40th day he ascended. And he stands even now at the Father's right hand, which is exactly what Stephen saw as they were stoning him to death in Acts 7, 56. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This thread is pulled all the way through. And one day he will return. Scripture says that all the promises of God will find their yes in him. And that is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Friends, you can be faithful in a world that's not because God will be faithful to establish his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. They are glorious. Thank you that your son was willing to become a son of man, that he might be fully God and fully man and fully capable to step into our place. Thankful that he was raised from the dead and we look forward to his return. Until he does so, would you help us to be faithful in a world that's not and to focus on your faithfulness to establish your kingdom. Amen. 
My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.